Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Silvati's podcast. I'm really excited this week. We have Julie McFadden, aka Hospice Nurse Julie, on this week. And to me, it's probably one of the most personal podcasts I'll do. And, and you'll find out very soon. So Julie is a registered nurse at working in the States, and she's been a nurse for about 14 years. And to put it into context, because I'm pretty sure she'll be too humble to brag, Julie is huge on social media let alone on TikTok, she has over 500,000 followers with, and I checked this, Julie, 4.5 million likes. That's huge. (laughs) So I'd like to thank you so much for joining me today, Julie. Thank you. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Very nice. Yes. And that's definitely something that I want to talk about a little later, but obviously the theme today will be, uh, you know, around the kind of work you do around, around the death journey and how important that work is in someone who is in hospice care or palliative care and in, that, in those end stages of life. I'm really interested in sort of who you are as a person and what led you to go into nursing. So what was young Julie like? Did you always know you wanted to be a nurse? Oh my gosh, no, no. I had, young Julie was a seeker (laughs) and anxious. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I had no clue. I was very, I, I would say almost immature. Like the only thing that really mattered to me when I was younger was friends and being cool. And that is literally it, friends and being cool, <laughs> right? And I, um, but I also was, I was always a seeker of like, why are we here? What's life all about? I always felt this longing to know and like a longing in general. Well, that didn't really have anything to do with nursing. Truth, truth. I, I, uh, I think that led me to study psychology in college, my first undergrads in psychology. And I went right after high school. So I was very young. You know, I graduated at 22 and um, worked in a mental health hospital as a behavioral tech, they called, uh, they called us. And actually that, now that I think about it, I'm just remembering this. Um, I had a patient who fainted and hit her head and, and cracked her head open and bled all over the linoleum floor. And I remember freaking out. And they had to actually take me downstairs because I was going to faint. I was like making it worse. I was just like, I I remember like not being able to say to the nurses, like so-and-so fell and hit the, like, I was just sort of like, and they could see that I was just panicked. So they, I remember seeing them running towards the scary thing that I was running away from and thinking like, I want to be able to not feel afraid when something that like that happens. So that like opened the window to me about like, I can't believe these nurses just like ran to this person bleeding everywhere. That's crazy. Um, and then I also, like I said, I'm really, I was young. So my friend was uh, in an accelerated nursing program where she got her bachelor's degree in nursing. So her four-year degree in three semesters because she already had her another bachelor's degree. So 
because of that one instance, and I was a little lost and, you know, my friend, my best friend was doing this. It seemed kind of cool. Maybe nursing would be a good idea. I don't know. You know, so I, I tried it and then I ended up, uh, you know, trying school. I mean, and I got into this program and that like takes over your life. So, and I was really, really into it. Once, once I got into learning about biology and pathophysiology and anatomy and phys, you know, all the things I was like, wow, I love this. I love it. I was obsessed. And that's like how we started. That's amazing. I, I love Yeah, I was obsessed. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I love these links that we both did psychology as undergrads. And we mm-hmm. both developed after that into different, slightly similar, but different fields after that, but still healthcare related, still people orientated. Yeah, for sure. And because I've binged mostly if not all of your videos on talk TikTok that's a lot that's dedication that's dedication right there that's a lot of videos <laughs> and there's and there's a lot of great content that you put out and so consistently but I'll come back to that a little later but because I have binged a lot of those videos I sort of know a bit about your background I know you've done other types of nursing before you work in your current role as a hospice nurse how have your other roles sort of prepared you for what you do now or influenced that Yeah. I mean, they did 100%. I had an idea of what I wanted to do in nursing school. I was set, right? I was like, now I try to talk to nursing students and say like, you don't need to do what I did, which was kill myself for three semesters, trying to be the perfect student and get, so I could get the right job. And it was just so much pressure. And I feel like that's really drilled into you as a nurse, at least in nursing school in the States, it's like, you need to get straight A. Like it was just this culture of like, you have to be the best, super competitive. Like, anyway, so I try to tell people don't do that (laughs) because it's not necessary, but I did do that. So I uh, wanted to be the best. After nursing school, I literally Googled number one hospital in the country and then was like, done. That's where I'm gonna, that's where I'm going to work. And I went there and I drove six hours it was only six hours away, thank God. It wasn't like a plane right away. Um, I guess I could have flown, but I drove six hours and I applied for two ICU nursing jobs that I wanted to work in critical care. And I um, got them both, which doesn't say anything about me, really. It's like nurses are needed everywhere. That's what I always tell nurses too. It's like, <laughs> not to be not to be a jerk, but like we need nurses. So you're going to, you're probably going to get the job. So that's, so you don't have to kill yourself during nursing school. You'll be okay. Um, but yeah, so I, oh yeah, so I was an ICU nurse. I had this whole plan. I was going to be an ICU nurse for two years. I was going to go back to school for anesthesia, make a lot of money, work in anesthesia. And that's what I was going to do. And then I became an ICU nurse and realized I knew nothing and it was scary and I had like nursing dreams literally every single night for like six months every single night I dreamt of nursing because it's just a huge learning curve you don't know what you don't know you think you know things (laughs) and you actually do it and you're like um and I was actually severely disappointed like I really by by two years in I was like I hate this I hate nursing I felt like soul crushed, like going to work every day was like horrific. I hated it. And it wasn't because of people I worked with or because it was just like, 
it wasn't for me. I just felt like I made the wrong choice. This isn't what I want to do. I don't like nursing. I'm not like the other nurses. I don't like, I felt like constantly stressed. I don't know if you know what the feeling of like where your chest is just tight all the time. That's how I felt. It was just like constant constriction. And um, that made me want to not nurse anymore. Um, but then I also started thinking like, this nursing like I don't like this this is like we're not I'm not getting to connect with the patients I'm not getting to connect with the families because we're so busy and I'm running around and like your focus is like keeping them alive and uh it's like you're not treating the person as a human it's like at least for me it was like you have to hurry 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 you couldn't like I always say like you can't hurry up and care like, at least I can't, I need like time. <laughs> I need to like connect with you. I need to have time to educate and talk. And you just didn't have that. I didn't have that anyway. I didn't feel like I did. Every once in a while you'd have the time, but usually it's like, you don't, you're like running around. No time to like truly talk to the family about what's truly happening. It gave me a heart to be like, I don't want, if I'm, and not everyone's dying in the ICU, but a lot of people are kept alive much much longer than they should they then than I than I believed in it was like I almost felt like we were doing a disservice to the person in this bed and the families thinking their loved ones going to get better because their creatinine I always talk about that because it sticks out in my head of like this person who's clearly being kept alive clearly not going to make it out of the ICU and we'd still have these like morning meetings with the family and the doctors on all of us and like someone would be like, well, the creatinine's a little better today. You know, it's like, what? And then the family would fixate on that all day long. Well, the creatinine's a little better today. Like, and I'm just thinking, why are we not having a real conversation about what's truly going on here, which is this person's dying. And if I feel like if we said it like that, this, your loved one is going to die. Like that's, that's, I mean, I don't want to say it this harshly, right? But like, I feel like sometimes you kind of have to for people to hear it. Your loved one is going to die. Do you want them to die here in this bed? After, and never wait, and never wake up and eventually turn off the machines and die here like this? Or do you want us to get them out of here, get them as good as we can, and then let them go home so they can die at home? I feel like most people would say they're not going to get better. I want them to come home with me. Being in the ICU, I'll never, I know I'll never regret it because I learned so much and I stayed there for nine years. It's a long time. And I learned a lot and it really made me who I am today in the sense of a super confident nurse. I'm really confident in what I do. Um, so I'm grateful I had that experience, but it was not the place for me. So I always encourage nurses now that like, if you are unhappy where you're working, move around. We are nurses. We can move around. I feel like that's not always encouraged or it feels too scary. Um, and the whole death and dying process and trying to learn how to talk to people in the ICU and kind of advocating for my patients. To me, I was advocating for them, even though it would, the end result would be death. I felt like it was, my, it was my responsibility to advocate for this person to push other healthcare workers to be honest. And I don't think anyone's maliciously being, no one's being malicious. It's just no one wants to talk about it or admit it or, or say the wrong thing or it's sensitive, right? But it's like, I've, after a while, once I started becoming confident in my ICU skills, I started being like, uh, 
is anyone going to talk to the family? Like, can I talk to the family? If you guys aren't going to, can I say something? Because this is what I'm seeing here. Are you seeing this? You know, and uh, that made me want to, yeah, it just made me want to start continuing to do that. And then that's how I started becoming passionate about hospice nursing and palliative care nursing and what that would look like. That's that was amazing. a long-winded answer. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it because there's a couple of things that you were talking about there that really um, struck at me. One was this expectation of, you know, nursing or ICU nursing in a way, and that kind of didn't match up perhaps, or what you were doing didn't feel, I don't know, I can relate because in my sort of role, what I thought I was going to be doing as an undergrad and then actually doing it didn't match up for me. And so I burned yeah. out very early as an osteopath to the point where I was like, do I even really want to do this? And I had to step away for a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that, that sort of jarring effect of, you know, this is what I've studied for, but this isn't what I want to do um, really resonates with me. And I'm sure if it resonates with me, it's going to resonate with a lot of, especially healthcare workers where, you know, you tend to be understaffed, underpaid, overworked. Yes, and overworked. And you're taught to like, at least here in the States, uh, I'm sure everywhere though, probably even worse. Uh, it's like, you're, it's bred into you to like self-sacrifice, don't have boundaries. You're not a good nurse if you don't stay over to help your coworkers or help your, you know what I mean? And it's like, nope, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Like I, uh, that's a whole nother soapbox I could get on about like self boundaries and not owing your whole entire life to this job like none of that is is sits right with me but it took me a long time to get there it took me a long time to get there and I will say just if anyone is listening I truly like thought I hated nursing I thought I hated it it was like and it's just that's just not true I love my job now and I'm still a nurse I love it I would do it I would probably wouldn't do it full-time for free but I would I would do it for free we all like, have bills to pay yeah, we all, right, right, right. Like if I had millions of dollars, though, I still, I still would do it. I still would do it. Yeah. Um, so it can be different. And some people maybe just aren't meant to be nurses, but in general, I would move around. If you're in healthcare and you're not happy, I would move around and make it work for you because you can find the place that you fit. Yeah, I think. Absolutely. And, and the other thing that you said that really struck at me was, you know, I wanted to advocate for patients and Certainly, I'll tell you a bit about sort of, um, I haven't shared this with the listeners, but um, my mom passed away last um, April of this year, um, depending oh. on they're listening to it, last year maybe. And there was one um, nurse in particular, um, and if she's listening, she'll, she'll know who she is, who was really and genuinely an advocate of my mom's when she was very poorly in hospital and when because of COVID restrictions we weren't allowed to go in and stuff and and it and all it took was that one person to mm -hmm. say hey something's not right or hey have the family been involved or have has anyone talked to the family and it only took that one person to make such a difference to mm -hmm. not just my experience of this whole process, but to, to my mom's experience, because from then, you know, all the multidisciplinary meetings happened, the communication started opening up and it opened up all these other doors that were just being shut constantly. And I'm sure, you know, you must know that whole process better than me. I only know it from 
a family member's side. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I was like getting chills when you were talking about that, because I feel like what happens is as a nurse, because I've been both nurses, I've been, I've been the robotic nurse who's kind of like, ah, da, 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 and like kind of jaded and you don't, not that you don't care, but a little bit. I mean, for lack of better words, right? You're just jaded, you're overworked, you're tired, you're sick of being met by people who aren't listening or like, you know, you're just hitting all this red tape all the time that you kind of get jaded and you're like, and you just don't have the energy, right? And then, and then I've been the other nurse that's like, hold on, something's not right here. Or you just know enough now to, to speak up, you know, for a little bit, you might not even know enough to speak up. And now you've been doing this long enough to be like, hey, what, what's going on? No, 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 no. I'm not going to listen to this person. This is what it should be like. And then you can change the way things go. You, you do have a voice. Um, and I also think that goes down to um, administration in general, like hospital administration and how hospitals are run because because nurses get so burnt out. I feel like that's how this uh, compassion fatigue can happen, you know, because we're not supported. We're not supported and, and not everybody, not always, right? But a lot of times it's yeah. like, Compassion fatigue happens because because there's not a supportive um, supportive administration or the hospital's not run properly or I mean I really do I kind of blame I'm a big advocate for like nursing unions and because because if not I feel like we're kind of run to the ground and then people blame then the blame is on like uh, nurses or faculty when really it's like no that's a bigger problem here. You know, but I'm so happy that you've, that that nurse was there. And, and we do have to remember that we can really make a big difference by um, speaking up and listening to ourselves, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I work in healthcare as, as we've already talked about and myself. And one of the main things that I took away from this whole process was that I needed to advocate better for my patients. And not just in a way to explain to them pathways of care or referrals or suddenly in osteopathy, like how do we get an MRI of your back, for example, but really who's your support system at home? Who's taking care of you when you can't walk up the stairs? You know, that kind of stuff. And then, and then really advocating against sometimes my managers or superiors where they're like, oh, actually maybe this isn't, I'm like, no, this is serious. This this mm -hmm. this can't wait another three months to get a scan. This is this is pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. And because most people will just listen to what they're told, right? So it depends on who's telling them, right? It just it just depends. Um, yeah. So you have to, yeah. Yeah, and 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 as sort of a patient or a family member of a patient, you don't know any different. You don't know. I know. What those referral pathways are you don't know what access they should have and that's certainly something that happened in, in mine instead of my experience my mom's experience you know we i think we my brother and i you know we were really fighting for referrals we were really doing all that groundwork whilst in the hospital and and you could see that the nurses were just amazing i'm not saying this because you're on the podcast like they genuinely were amazing and mm -hmm. so the the call them fights they're not actual fights but the the battles we were facing were with the hospital with the hospital administration were with getting external referrals and things like that and so I always felt like the people on the ground 
always have your best interest and they always will do the best that they absolutely can. Yeah. But it just takes like, in my case, that one person. And it sounds like for a lot of your patients, you might be that person who's advocating for them. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I try. And I definitely do a better job now that I, and, and that's that's solely because I like what I'm doing. I take time for myself. I have a good work-life balance. So when I do work, I can work well. Right. And, and have the energy and like the full tank that can um, give everyone, you know, so I have the energy to, to do it all. Right. Um, And to, to fight for what I think is right. Um, yeah. yeah. And did any of your psychology backgrounds sort of inform you? Because you see when you, know, you come across as quite boundaried in terms of your work, in terms of knowing your limits, in terms of giving the best care that you know without compromising care. Did any of your psychology background help sort of inform you of that or give you a springboard to looking at any of those aspects? Or was it purely just working in that environment and learning it from the ground up? Yeah, I think it's mostly that working in the environment and learning from the ground up and, and figuring out, um, figuring out the hard way by not having boundaries and then being pissed. (laughs) And then, and you know, just, I mean, I've been doing this for 14 years, which isn't that long, but long enough to be like, Oh, okay. This is, this is what has to happen now. Like, um, and just gaining the confidence and realizing that like, um, I can, because what people think I think is that you set boundaries and now it's all going to be good. Actually you set boundaries and people are pissed <laughs> and then you oh, have yeah. to just deal with that. You know, you have to be okay with feeling really uncomfortable that you just upset your boss or upset your other coworkers or upset, you know, and it's like, and that gets easier and easier with time. But, uh, initially you're like, Oh shit. I, uh, um, everyone's mad at me now, you know, and people cave then. Right but I just learned over time you don't. But I think the, psycholo- what I have, the psychology background just helped because um, I think it takes a t- certain type of personality to want to learn about psychology, <laughs> right? At least oh, for yeah. me, like, you know, like I said, I was, I've always been a seeker, I still am. So I think all of that kind of helps me in general with like wanting to understand why I didn't like my job so much, wanting to understand what I could do to, make it easier for me and so I could still like it right um so it's just a combination of of all of it but mostly just learning the hard way just by doing it over and over again yeah and one of the things that you talk a lot about in your in your TikTok videos is is the death process itself and I always like to think of and I probably am plagiarizing from one of your videos now but I always like to think about the death process as a biological entity and Mm. a spiritual entity and sometimes they intertwine and sometimes they don't and I wonder if you can explain that sort of those two processes for us. Well I started initially I started out with my uh, TikTok and Instagram um, purely for the biological side of it because I thought the biological side of death and dying was almost spiritual for lack of better words. Right. Like, but it was just like, or magical. I feel like it was, it was a great example of like biology working for us from what I've seen over and over and over again, meaning like our bodies are built to die. Most people don't know that 
<laughs> I know I didn't know that. And I was an ICU nurse for a bunch of years. I didn't understand that body, our body has like built in, like our bodies will take care of us in the death and dying process. If you choose, I feel like you have to go on more, um, like when I say like die naturally, I don't mean like from old age, like people think, I mean, you might be dying from something, but you're not doing anything to intervene with that dying process. Right. And so I started the TikTok originally just to educate people about like, Hey, did you know our body does X, Y, and Z when it's dying and look how it can take care of us and look how it helps us. And, um, and to me, that kind of ties into spirituality because it feels, um, I don't know, for lack of better words, like sacred. It feels, it feels like magical that our body can, um, yes, it doesn't mean we live forever, but it means that our bodies um, understand that it's, it feels like, it seems like our bodies understand that it's dying. <laughs> and it has like steps it takes to help us die more peacefully. And uh, I want people to know that. That's why I started um, doing it. And then I think that um, surprised people, hence why I got people to listen, which was amazing. I was kind of surprised. Uh, I was hoping people would be interested, but most people want to not talk about death and dying. Um, and then because then people started asking more spiritual questions, like it led to a more spiritual side because people were like, well, wait, what? You know, like, what about this? What about this? I don't know if I answered your question, but I think it, it kind of ties, it, I think it ties together. I, I don't at all set out to make it tie together because I want everyone to feel included. I don't necessarily want to educate so people like think there's a spiritual side sure. i mean even though i think even though i think there is but i'm i don't want to try to push that i just want to show what actually happens and i feel like it kind of turns into a spiritual conversation because it's pretty cool <laughs> and and it feels spiritual absolutely and one of the things you said was you know you wanted to create this sort of i think what you've done is created this space where i hadn't seen anyone talk about death so openly um, you know, on social media or anything like that. And I think what what's happened as a result is this almost this community has come together and I can see this, uh, I can recognize some of the names that leave comments now. And I certainly, I still leave comments now and again, especially on Instagram. Um, and it's almost, you've, you've created this space where it's okay to talk about death. And for so long and for so many people, that's something that we avoid talking about mm -hmm. because it's scary yeah. and it's unknown and it's unsettling for some people. And it was for me, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and we talked earlier before this, before, you know, I've been in therapy and I'm still doing the therapy and, you know, and, and that's helped me immensely. So I'm appreciative of that. I remember one of the first videos, first video I saw of yours was on TikTok. And um, I think my mom had passed away or died. Again, we'll talk about language a bit yeah. later. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And um, I remember like for me, TikTok was just a distraction. It was a really nice distraction from all the really shitty stuff that was going on. And it was, you know, the limp sync videos and, and the, the dance videos and the, the jokes. And, and then I scrolled and your, and your, um, your video came up and I think it was on morphine or pain or something like that. And it literally had been like two or three days since my mom had died. And I held my breath the entire video. And it felt like you were talking to me directly. I know 
you weren't, but it felt so immense, like you were piercing into me. And it's what I needed to hear because I had had so much conflicting information about the pain at the end of the process. And I, I, not that it's your fault, but I burst into tears and I was in tears for like 20 minutes. And it felt so cathartic to able to be yeah. able to be told, it's okay to give someone pain relief if they're at the end stage of their life. And nobody gave me that permission to think that was okay. Oh my gosh. Well, one, it makes me, it makes me want to cry <laughs> in a good way. I mean, I love, well, first off, crying is amazing. So I know exactly what you mean by like bursting into tears and having like a cathartic moment because you just need to release just need to release the tension buildup or whatever that is, right? So I'm so happy that it spoke to you. And this is like truly, um, it means a lot to me to hear stuff like that because uh, yeah, I mean, that's like, that's honestly why I make these videos. And sometimes it's, it's easy for me to brush it. It's easy for me to deflect it and be like, oh, ha, ha, and kind of just, uh, I don't know, just, just, just deflect, right? So to speak to someone like eye to eye and have you say that, it really does mean a lot to me because that's truly why I'm making videos and I'm glad they're helping. And I truly, I know that most people don't know the things, not that like I know, but like any, you know, any person that's working in this realm knows. We, we forget that not everybody knows and that people need permission to to um, take care of their loved one, permission to know that it's okay how they died. Everything that you saw is likely super normal. And, and pain medicine uh, doesn't kill people, you know? I mean, it, it really feels like it does because it gets huge bad rap. And I, I don't mean to say this so flippant, like I know it actually does kill people, especially if you're abusing it, right? But when, when it's end of life, it's at end of life, it, it is, is actually hard. I'm telling you, it, it would be hard to kill someone, quote unquote, with pain medicine. It would be hard to do. So, I get, so the idea that that's happening, you know, is like I need to dispel this myth because it is not happening. It would be truly hard. Like we would have to work at it <laughs> for that to really happen. Hence, why people are like, "Do you ever give a little bit more?" To da 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 da, and it's like a little bit more would not. Da, da 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 a little bit you would have to get I mean whatever it isn't I'm kind of digressing but like yeah people to understand that like the amount you would truly have to give to actually end someone's life is is obscene and that would never happen right so yeah ah give the and pain meds. it give really the pain is meds. such a testament to you as a person as and, and, and true to your character and I'm not ego brushing because you're on here but I remember sending you a dm shortly after it wasn't that same day and you said thank you for supporting your mother like you don't know me like you don't know my story you probably get hundreds of you know thousands of these kinds of messages but the fact that you dm me back and said and nobody had said that to me like thank you for supporting your mom and I was like oh shit yeah I did that but you uh -huh. don't think about it in the process and so I'm wondering, can you talk me through, I mean, I've seen it, you know, but can you, for anyone who's, who's sort of in that stage currently, who's listening or hasn't, isn't there yet, can you talk me through what that end stage of life looks like and what kind of things they might expect? So before it gets to the phase we call actively dying, which is like hours, which is a few hours to a few days before someone dies, um, 
we're in like a different stage. So like before the actively dying stage, people can look a little different depending on the disease that they're dying from, right? So they could experience different things. And some are quote unquote worse than others. I hate saying it like that, but there will be more, I guess we could say more symptoms than others, right? Just depends. Um, but usually and before the actively dying phase, the main things you're going to see are a lot of sleeping and not a lot of eating. A lot of sleeping, not a lot of eating. Some functional decline, which we, which just means, you know, they used to be fully independent, walking up and down stairs, making their own food, doing their own thing, and now that's not happening. So they need more help with all of those things, um, which can be hard on everybody, hard on the person, hard on the people doing it for them. Um, but just FYI, that, I always talk about the, like, thank you for supporting your mom, because uh, it's like the truest act of love, I think, like to be able to, because um, it's so uncomfortable. It's not easy to do that, but you're doing it because you love that person, you know? And it's like, it's just the truest act of love. I think it's such an act of love that goes unnoticed. Um, anyway, so then the actively dying part, I always talk about that because of no matter what you're dying from you're going to look almost the same almost everybody during this actively dying phase looks the same which is mostly unconscious or in and out of consciousness maybe some disorientation maybe not depending when they're awake they could be disoriented or they could be oriented for a little bit um so mostly sleeping or unconscious no no food or water for the most part um sleep like uh um changes in breathing so almost everybody has changes in how they're breathing so it's very normal to see uh changes in skin color um sometimes there's terminal secretions which we can talk about that's what everyone calls the death rattle which everyone hates but it's very very normal um and that's kind of it and during that time you just want to be with them and keep them clean keep them safe keep them comfortable and uh, we can always um, manage symptoms if they come up. Um, sometimes they're a little restless. Sometimes they might moan or have like a little grimace that could show that they're in pain. Um, but for the most part, it's about being. There's no like doing. There's not much doing at that time. Just be with them. And just know like I love Barbara Carnes, my favorite author. She's like the queen of hospice. I love her, Barbara Carnes. I started following listening. her because of you now. I know. My gosh, she's the best. I love, I did an IG live with her and she talks about um, dying like the laboring process. The person's like laboring, uh, which I don't want you to think laboring equals pain. You don't have to have pain in there, but the body is doing weird things that are actually very normal. And it's just the dying process and we can just let it be. And I think the fear is people don't see it that much and their loved one looks really different. So something must be wrong. So we need to get in there and fix it. And they need people to be a little closer to bedside. I think hospice isn't super close bedside. We're kind of like in and out a lot um, to say, hey, no, this is normal. I know she doesn't look like herself, she looks different. This is different, but this is very normal when it comes to the end of life. And that is why I want people to listen to my TikTok and watch my videos because so many people have written into me saying, oh my gosh, I thought my mom had a horrific death. 
until I watched your videos and I realized everything that she was doing was super normal and she had a normal death. And it's like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I only started to understand that process after. And that's when I started watching that like, your videos came up and that's when I started watching your videos. And one of the things you said earlier was, you know, you don't give them food or, or drink or water. And that's something that I definitely struggled with because you think, well, at least initially I thought, but they'll get weaker if they don't eat or if there's no water in the system, they'll dehydrate. So naturally they'll be weaker or more tired. And I wonder if you can tell me a bit more about that, about why actually they don't need food or water at this stage. Yeah, yeah this was the biggest lesson I had to learn too as an ICU nurse. I've literally never understood this. I never knew this. So when I first started my first hospice job, I had an amazing doctor that I literally like followed around. We did joint visits. I like regurgitate everything she taught me. She was the most amazing doctor ever. I love her. And she helped me understand this so much. And she's so full of knowledge. So one, during the death and dying process, during the end of life journey, I like to call it, if your loved one is awake and talking to you and asking you for food and water, and they can actually physically swallow and all the things are okay, 100% give them whatever they want, right? So that's what I always preface. Because sometimes people will be like, my dad was begging for water. And it's like, okay, well, if your dad was begging for water and he can take it, definitely give him water. I'm not saying don't give them food and water. Give them food and water if they want it. But they, don't. <laughs> they usually don't, or they usually can't. So if that is the case, know that. So when someone's at end of life, especially with hydration, because you and I both work in the health healthcare. So in the hospitals, we're giving everyone IVs and we're push, pushing fluids, 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 fluids. End of life will 100%, like 100%, 10 out of 10 times, if they're truly end of life, will make it worse if you give them IV fluids because, um, you know, when you're healthy and your body's working well, you give a liter fluid bag of someone to someone, it's going to go intravascularly. It's going to hydrate them. It's going to make them feel better. End of life. It will not do that. So when you're giving, if you were, if you were to give like a liter of fluid to someone end of life, it would just, it wouldn't go intravascular. It would start going intravascular. Then it would seep out and third space usually in their lower extremities first, then it ends up uh, just becoming totally fluid. They'll end up becoming fluid overloaded, go into the, and then their lungs will fill and then they'll become, they'll go into respiratory distress. How do I know this? Number one, science. It's like a fact, but also I've witnessed this in the ICU over and over and over again. We always flooded people with fluid and they always had edema. We had people with they were anasarca, just like full body edema, because we're just pumping them full of fluid to try to keep them alive. So at end of life, um, the more, the less you do that, the more peaceful that person will be. One, because you're not fighting over, you should eat more and they don't want to. Uh, but two, the less you mess with the natural dying process, because the loved one is dying right? That's, that's the fact. That's, that's the sad fact. The loved one is dying. Nothing we're going to do about it. How do we want them to die? Do we want them to be, do we want their journey to be peaceful and their body to do what it's going to do? Or do we want to try to fight against it? So 
fight against it, meaning always offer food and water, always offer their favorite things. If they want it, great. If they don't, that's okay. Because the end result will be death, unfortunately. But okay, so when we can accept that, when can we, when we can accept that, we can help them die more peacefully by just allowing the body to take its natural course. And food and water at that time is actually usually, um, I don't want to say bad, but kind of bad. It can like get in the way of things. It gets in the way. It doesn't, it doesn't do what we think it's going to do. Even people, side note, even people who have like a G-tube who like you are for, you know, you have a G-tube in your stomach and you're putting two feeds in there, they'll still have low albumin and be malnutritioned because their body's just not doing what it's supposed to do. Absorbing the nutrients, it's not doing what it should do because it's end of life. So you could really try to be like, you know what, I'm going to force this. You could even say, I don't believe you, Julie. I'm going to get a G-tube, put all the two feeds in there, get an IV, get TPN, get, it still won't do it. The body will be like, no, it doesn't absorb it. Often, in, and this is so um, reflective of the TikToks and, and what you, you put out there. And what I'm appreciating is being able to maybe, you know, selfishly ask the questions I want to ask, but also yeah. expand on some of the things that maybe I haven't been able to put in a comment or something like that. Yeah. And one of the things you, we, you touched upon earlier was pain. And so I suppose, does that work the same way? You just allow people to have pain relief as much as they need in, in yep. for the same process. Yep. As much as they need for the same process. So for the most part, for the most part, once you get pain controlled, they will feel and act better. They might be lethargic at first, right? Cause it does, the body has to like kind of get used to it. But usually once the pain gets controlled and it's been a couple of days, they will actually be like, ah, I feel better. I can do things. I can, like their body will, will work better. Um, there are a couple of times, so I don't want to paint this picture of like, we are, we have everything under control always. So like, I feel like there are certain diseases, certain personalities, certain, just, uh, certain people, right. Who are either awake and in pain and agitated <laughs> or asleep and not sometimes that, that, that is unfortunate. I hate when that happens, but that is the case sometimes where it's like, uh, we're still not, um, so it's like we give them enough medication that they're comfortable and that means they are sleeping all the time because when they're awake, they're not comfortable. Now, do we want it to always be like that? No. Is it like that most of the time? No, I would say it's not like that most of the time. Most of the time, we don't need to give that many that much medication for them to feel better. But sometimes and there, there it, it is kind of like we basically need to sedate somebody to make them feel better. Um, that doesn't necessarily still mean we hasten death. It just means that they're going to be asleep most of most of their dying process because when they're awake, they're uncomfortable or they have terminal agitation or something where, mm -hmm. where like you really do just need to heavily sedate them. Or sometimes too, we can kind of like overload purposely to kind of like, because once once you let pain or agitation get out of control, it's really hard to get it back down. So you kind of have to overload with meds to get them back down to usually sleeping. And sometimes they'll sleep really well for like a couple of days and then they'll wake up almost um, like a reset where they're like, okay, they're like their bodies. I almost think it's like a nervous system thing where their body's kind of relaxed again. So they wake up after those couple of days of like 
relaxing and they can not be as agitated, not be as, not be in so much pain. It just depends. That's why you have a team of people to like, to help yeah. it, hopefully. And I will preface and say that the palliative care team that was surrounding me and my family were amazing. They were so supportive and explained everything. And sometimes I felt like they were holding back because I was emotional and I was, you know, there's only so much you can take in one sitting, but they were so supportive. And one of the things that the palliative doctor, and I hope, I hope she listens to this, but, and she'll know who she is. She said, we've only got one chance to make this right. So let's do everything that we can to make it right for you, for you and your, and for, for her. Yeah. Yeah. And that's stuck with me. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's, let's get it right. Because you don't get a second chance at death. Mm -mm. Yeah. And to go along, I don't know if I, like to go back to your, um, like the food nutrients, like, cause yeah, if you don't, if you don't give them the nutrients, right, then they're going to get weaker. And I think to sum that up is, um, like that saying that I always say, which I didn't come up with, but like your loved one isn't um, dying because they're not eating and drinking. You know, they're dying because they're not eating and drinking because they're dying, right? And even if we gave them all of the things, it still wouldn't do what, it, what we want it to do. It wouldn't make them because their body is dying, right? Yeah. That's, so that's what we have to we have to kind of rethink. And I even had to as a nurse. I was like, no, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Can't we just give them a, but I've actually, I've actually physically witnessed people refusing to believe what we said. And then I see what happens, which is not good. Yeah. You know, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So that's why I'm such a strong advocate for, for patients really. Like um, when I'm with a family on hospice who doesn't want to listen to what we are saying, which is do not force feed, do not this. Um, I will try to educate with compassion, obviously, but eventually if I really feel like they're hurting that person, I need to advocate for that patient and help them understand, Hey, I know your goal is to not have them suffer. So you are (laughs) having them suffer by what you're doing because you can't let go. You're making them suffer more that usually will kind of get it, get them in the mindset. Like, but there are times where I feel like I have to get a little brutal to because, because I am an advocate for the patient. I have to advocate for them, you know? Um, And ultimately sometimes. Yeah. And you're the professional in the room. The other person is usually very emotional, not always thinking rationally, you know? And so it takes, a really compassionate person to say hey this isn't the best interest this isn't because yeah. I don't want to administer certain things yeah. or not come yeah. in and do this yeah and if I can go back to sort of pain just very briefly you know you talked about sort of like administering the pain medication and 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 allowing them that sort of that ease of discomfort I don't know how else to talk about that but and and sort of in my head, I was almost linking that to sort of what you said earlier, whereby people in that end, the actively stage of um, the active stage of dying will sleep more. Mm-hmm. And so are those correlated? For example, would you see somebody being more at rest or sleeping more because you've administered more pain medication or the correct level of pain medication, for example? 
Not usually. They're usually sleeping more because of the dying process. So that's usually going to happen whether we give pain medicine or not. Yeah. Of course, side effects of pain medicine can be lethargy, you know, constipation, all the things. So there are side effects. But for the most part, if someone is, if someone has been taking pain medicine, um, that's not going to make them sleep more. They're going to be sleeping more because of the dying process. Um, if they are, they're probably already sleeping more. And then if they haven't been getting pain medicine and then do because they need it, that can, that can make them sleep more, but eventually their body pretty quickly will have a tolerance for it. And that won't really be a big side effect. Uh, it'll just be because they're in the end stage of life and their body is preparing itself. And that's one of the ways it does sleeps. Yeah. Sleep. And you mentioned the rally earlier. Can you explain what the rally is? The rally is insane. <laughs> I've witnessed it. Yeah, it only happens in like 30% of patients. Uh, so one third of patients. And the it's really specific. And I can tell because I, I got a lot of comments about this happened to me, this happened to me. And I'm, and I'm sure it has, but, it's, but it, I have to say it's super specific. So it has to be like, the person is dying very close, like not having good days, not having good days, very like seeming like this is getting close. And then suddenly we'll have a day uh, or a few hours where their personality kind of comes back. They have energy. They can like get up and go to the bathroom. Everyone's rallied different depending on the energy level they have and stuff. But like, it'll be a significant change where you're like, whoa, well, this is amazing. Um, and then they'll die shortly after. So sometimes a few hours, sometimes a few days. It's usually no longer than a couple of days. So some people were like, my aunt had a rally for a month and a half. That I wouldn't, I would not consider that a rally. Like a rally is like a burst. That's why I call it the surge. It's like a burst of energy and then they die. Um, so I try to educate about all of this prior to any of it happening. Cause I don't want to be like the bearer, the bearer of bad news. Like, well, you know, <laughs> like if someone's having a good day, I don't want to say. Yeah. Educate prior. So people can um, kind of like be present for the rally and be happy, be there and kind of understand, Hey, this might be the last hurrah and yeah. let's enjoy it. Exactly. And it's that not giving yeah. them false expectation, but enjoying that present time that they might have mm -hmm. this burst of energy in a way and I think that's that's so important it was definitely described as the surge and you've said both interchangeably um yeah one of the things that you talk a lot about in in your videos is the language that we use surrounding death and the adjectives or the, or the words that we use to describe can you talk to me a bit more about that yes so I uh, I feel like I had a stronger opinion about this before where I, where I really wanted to, what I want to get used to is, is saying death and saying dying and saying died and saying dead. Even as I'm saying those words, even me, someone who's around it all the time gets a little, Ooh, I feel like I'm hurting people by saying it, you know, even saying it to you. <laughs> but I think that's the problem. That's the problem that we have this culture where we don't say died or dying um, because we just makes us all uncomfortable and no one wants to be uncomfortable. So we just avoid it by saying other things like passed away, gone. Um, now, but I've changed my tune a little bit because I do understand that softening it a little bit 
you know, for people who all have lost, there's a word, lost someone, right? Um, it's nice, yeah, you have to meet people where they're at. So I can't force someone to be like, die, dead, bad. I, you know, I, that's not very, that's not gonna get me anywhere. Um, so I do understand that the word passed away. I mean, I say passed away all the time. I catch myself all the time. And I, I don't think there's really anything wrong with saying that. I just want to start opening our eyes to the fact that it makes us all uncomfortable to say death, dying, dies. I make. Uh, I guess I shouldn't. I shouldn't put that. Not maybe not everybody, but most people. Even me, who's a hospice nurse, who sees it and talks about it day in day out, um, because we don't have. Because it doesn't have to be. To me, death is not the worst thing. Suffering is worse. You know, or there's just other things that are worse. And and I think half the reason why we think it's so awful is because we refuse to talk about it. And we refuse to say those things, say words like that, tell someone they're dying. We don't want to tell people that. Yeah. And I have seen the power. What's the word? Like I've seen the, yeah, the power it may give someone and the relief it gives someone to be a person who can say that to someone and be there with them when I say it and have them say okay well then what happens now like i've seen people get relief from having a person who's not uncomfortable saying you're dying and here's how long and so and kind of in in that way um because uh it gives yeah i think i think now not everybody right not not everybody you have to kind of ask them too i love it i worked with this um, or i went on another podcast with another palliative care doctor who said she asks her patients how they want to hear news. Do you want it blunt and straightforward? Do you want it a little sugar-coated? She actually asks them before she says yeah. anything. And I thought, yeah, that's true. Not everyone is like me. I would want it straightforward because that's how I, I need to kind of be black and white. Like I need that in my brain, but not maybe some people don't. That's why I started changing my tune after I talked to her. I was like, you yeah, know, that's right. I don't, I don't need to make people like, um, believe exactly what I believe, but I do want to change the conversation around those words and yeah. take the stigma away from it. Absolutely. And I've, you know, during the course of this, this course use die and passed away interchangeably. And I think after watching that video, it helped not reframe, but made me more conscious of the, the words I was trying to use and what my intention behind the word was. Yeah. Yeah. Because that can be so powerful. Yeah. It gives people permission sometimes, like permission to talk about it, permission like, oh, this person's okay. They can, they can handle it or they can talk about it. Or um, I have found that I have found that the more I seem okay with talking to somebody about their end of life journey, the, the more they're willing to talk about it versus trying, because everyone gets uncomfortable. Oh, you know, like uh, even doctors and nurses, they get uncomfortable with a person trying to talk about their own end of life sometimes yeah and, and often yeah. those those conversations about have saying to the that, that loved person is is it's hard it's you know it's 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 and i promised myself i wasn't gonna cry julie um, 
<laughs> but often it, it is one of those conversations that you might not have or you know you it, it's difficult to have or you rely on other professionals in the room to yeah. initiate yes um, and, and and I suppose thinking about sort of like family members or caregivers like what do you think they could do in that sort of that actively dying stage that would be helpful or um, during the actively dying phase, if their loved one is unconscious for the most part, um, I would say knowing their loved one, right? So like if your loved one, I would still treat your loved one like they're there, right? And um, you always want to keep them clean, safe, and comfortable. That's my big thing, clean, safe, comfortable. So as long as they're clean, safe, and comfortable, then the add-ons would be knowing that loved one, right? So if your loved one likes quiet, then be quiet and hold their hand if they like that, right? Or if your loved one likes a certain, likes The Price is Right, which is a TV show here, you know, like, or likes soap operas or, or likes Frank Sinatra or likes whatever, like have that stuff being, like I would create a, a sacred almost space for them because this is a special time. To me, this is a special time for them. This is a special time for them. So like, and for you. So you can create a space that you think they would like um, and just sort of be there and talk to them like they're there because I do think they can hear you. Um, and that's it. There's actually not much to do. You know, that, that sort of just be the present moment, being willing to be uncomfortable um because it's hard right yeah. so like trying not to avoid it uh because it's hard you know like in I fact, said I feel like that's like the greatest act of love yeah in fact that's one of the things that you talk about regularly is is you talk about hearing being one of the last senses to to stop working is mm -hmm. that is that right yeah so they've um they've done I say they um, I have looked up the studies, but I don't know them enough to like rattle off who did it and where it was. And, but they've done studies on EEGs on dying brains yeah. and they, and like hearing is the last part of the brain to kind of shut down. And then also just side note, people in the ICU who are intubated and sedated, and they also who don't die, but they end up coming back. They do say that they hear people, that they heard people wow. during that time. So just yeah. FYI. They didn't say it sounded scary. Like sometimes people think that sounds scary, but really they said it was comforting and they, it was like intermittent. They could like hear things and they could tell which nurse was their nurse. And um, so. And one of the things that resonated with me was, you know, when a person has died and, you know, they actively remove the body from the room to the morgue or wherever they go. What I didn't, I suppose, pay more attention to was the impact that has on staff. You know, you have then a funeral to arrange and family members to inform and you have a hundred things to do. And what was really touching in, in my circumstance was a lot of the nurses came to my mom's funeral and I didn't expect that. And I thought that was just such a sweet gesture. Yeah. And I suppose my question to you is, you know, given the work that you do, what impact that does that have on on a healthcare professional not just a healthcare professional but as a human after someone's not just 
died but has physically left that room or that area or your ward for example mm -hmm. so one um just fyi i uh i found it harder so now i visit people in their homes so i don't actually uh so it's a little different yeah. but in the icu i feel like it was a little harder um when people died because to me there's a lot of suffering in their death and i didn't it was just harder it was a struggle it was more of a uh it was just more of a struggle and it it uh like stuck with me a little more um for me anyway personally in being a hospice nurse um there is sadness right but it doesn't actually feel super sad to me it feels more like sacred and i'm like happy for them and I know the family sad. I know the pain, right? I understand that there's like pain and I feel bad for that. And I feel like compassion for that. Um, but as a nurse, it's like how it feels is like, it feels like we did a good job, right? So, and I feel like, like I said, I don't, I don't think death is the worst thing, right? So it doesn't feel super depressing to me. Um, there are definitely people I remember a little more and I've have a little, and usually those are um, like younger people because they usually take longer to die and they have kids and I'm really close with their wife or their, you know, so like those people kind of um, like, it's harder because they usually suffer more. So really I'm more affected by if someone's like suffering along the way. That is when I'm like, that's when I go home and I'm super sad. I want to make sure it's like, they're not suffering. Right? Yeah. So that is what, more issue than the actual death um if anything it's like it just feels like a sacred moment and i'm like i feel like honored that i get to be a part of it and honored that the family is there and i can help them in any way like it feels beautiful um despite the pain of it i guess yeah and it's interesting that yeah. you say that because throughout this whole process and and watching you know some of your videos the one thing I've come away from is as a health professional, I need to advocate more for the people that I'm treating or that I care for. And death doesn't scare me anymore. And I wasn't expecting mm -hmm. that. I've seen it. I've not that I've lived through it, but I've lived vicariously through it. And it doesn't scare me now. I'm yeah. not scared of the process. I'm like, actually, if I had people around me that I loved and just supported me the way I was able to do that. Death would be the release in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel the same. Yeah. Like I don't want to, I don't want to die tomorrow, you know, or, but I know I'm going to die and I don't have fear about it. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to do a video about that. Now that I think about it, I'm going to do a video about that. There you go. Good job. Thank you. I'll look out for it. <laughs> Speaking of videos, um, I'm just so appreciative of your time. I have like two pages of notes that I wanted to ask you on. Oh so my gosh. I've just, I've just loved this whole conversation. And, and like I said before, I've really appreciated you opening up this space for people to talk about death so openly and candidly and give information that's accurate and not, you know, um, derived from, from old wives' tales or things like that. Yeah. It's, it's science. It's the truth. It's... And it's, it's so pertinent to a lot of people that are going through this, not just the people who are caring for them, but the actual people who are living through that experience. And so I've just been, 
I've just been amazed at the one, the, the, the prolific content that you do make, because it feels like you're always on my for you page on TikTok, which is great. Um, and I don't cry. It makes me happy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't cry now when I see your videos, which to me is a good thing. Um, but <laughs> for anyone who isn't familiar with sort of your, your, your content, where can they find you? Um, yeah. So I'm on TikTok and Instagram um, at Hospice Nurse Julie is the handle for either one of those. Um, I finally got reels, which is a big thing on Instagram. P.S. I did not have that for they wouldn't grant me access to it. So now I have like full access to all of Instagram. So that makes me happy because I actually think it's easier to uh, do stuff on Instagram. But TikTok and Instagram. Uh, they are a little different depending on uh, depending on which one you have, but Hospice Nurse Julie, that's yeah. where I'm at. And I so look forward to the next live because those are always so enlightening. So I will keep oh my watching. Gosh, thank you, thank you so much. You're so yeah. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thanks. <laughs>